Euronet Plus Panorama is a weekly review of European news broadcast by our network of EU radio stations. This week, we look at Europe's move to up its military spending. European history dictates that national security has long been a priority area for all EU member states. But the conflict in Ukraine has only strengthened the case for some form of defence collaboration at European level. On Monday the 21st of March, member states gave the green light to the Union's revamped Common Security and Defence Strategy. The so-called strategic compass was beefed up to make explicit reference to the war in Ukraine, then formally agreed by foreign and defence ministers at their joint meeting in Brussels. Its objectives include building the capacity to deploy 5,000 rapid response forces at EU level in the event of a crisis by 2025. The agreement was welcomed by leaders from around the bloc. Radio 24 shares Mario Draghi's comments, which were made ahead of this week's European summit, at which national leaders were expected to endorse the move. La bussola strategica è un disegno importante per il futuro della difesa europea. The strategic compass is an important blueprint for the future of European defence. It is a design achievement which will be endorsed by all member states. It's an extraordinary step from a planning perspective because it outlines the main features of what our future defence will look like. But it is a small first step because the figure of 5,000 soldiers was set in a different time and seems too little now. Because the number of 5,000 soldiers at a press conference in Brussels, the EU's High Representative, Josep Borrell, also celebrated the agreement, saying that the EU needed to play a greater role in keeping its citizens safe. However, as Esradio reports, he was quick to clarify that the much-touted rapid response unit does not constitute an EU army and that all member states will retain their own armed forces. Federico Santopinto, an analyst at GRIP, the Brussels-based group for research and information on peace and security, agrees with Borrell's assertion that we are not talking about an army here. In an interview with RTBF, Santopinto specified that it would simply be a multinational force that does not depend on the US. It's not a question of creating a European army that would replace national armies. For the time being, there is no such ambition. If you want to have a real European army that replaces national armies, you would need to have a federal state, and it seems that member states are not yet ready to take this step. But by European defence, we mean the creation of multinational forces that member states would provide for policies led and decided by the EU, with, if necessary, a European military command like we have at NATO level. So it is about the EU's capacity to act alongside NATO, but also to act when NATO and the United States do not want to act. Because we must not forget that one of the objectives of European defence is this strategic autonomy, the ability to carry out strategic actions without depending on a third party, in this case without depending on the United States. Luxembourg had advocated for a greater emphasis on prevention and mediation, but considers the adopted text a good compromise 
as Luxembourgish Defence Minister Francois Bausch told 100.7. This proposal was taken up. We insisted on that. But there are still some elements missing for sure. I'm happy that our proposal on mediation has been included. Mediation should play a major role in the future because defence should be about avoiding conflicts. This should be the main goal. With everything we are currently doing, there is a risk that we put too much emphasis on buying weapons on preparing to defend ourselves, which is also the right thing to do. Prevention could be neglected, though. It's therefore important to talk about prevention in the text, and we would have liked to go further here. The ongoing crisis has also prompted most member states to review their own defence capabilities and increase their national defence spending. Warsaw, for example, is seeking to amend the Polish constitution to remove the need to apply existing budgetary rules to defence spending, says Polski Radio. Poland's new Defence Act, which was signed into law last week on the 18th of March, allows for defence spending to reach 3% of GDP, which exceeds the threshold currently set out in the constitution. Government spokesperson Peter Muller outlined the thinking behind this move. First of all, in a situation where Russia poses a threat of direct attack on other EU countries, it is Poland's duty to prepare the Polish army at lightning speed for the possibility of such an attack. We are therefore proposing to exclude the financing of military-related issues from the financial rules. The Polish army must be able to be equipped at the highest level in no time at all. That is why one of the proposed constitution amendments will be the exclusion of armament expenditure from the public debt threshold. Even Germany has announced that it is to boost its defence spending. This represents quite a philosophical shift, notes Marie-Sixte Ambert, a senior fellow at Paris-based think tank, the Open Diplomacy Institute, and a regular columnist at new Euronet Plus member station, France's E-Radio. In the Bundestag on 27 February, the German Chancellor spoke of a Zeitenwende, a change of era. The world has changed, so defense and security, foreign and energy policy must also change. The speech was accompanied by major announcements, including the creation of a special 100 billion euro multi-year fund for defense and the defence budget will be increased to more than 2% of GDP already this year. Germany has finally woken up to the national and European threats and responsibilities. Back in December, the federal coalition agreement spoke of, and I quote, European sovereignty. Russia's aggression in Ukraine is making some Eastern European nations particularly nervous. After his meeting with US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin in Sofia last weekend, Bulgarian Premier Kirill Petkov reassured his citizens that they could sleep soundly in the knowledge that they had allies around them. Indeed, the country's president, Ruman Radev, told BNR on Tuesday that Bulgaria was counting on one such ally, Poland, to help keep its ageing Russian fighter jets airworthy. Bulgaria cannot be part of the alliance's new defence model without real and modern defence capabilities. There are still MiG-29s in use in Poland and Slovakia and MiG-21s in Romania. I say this advisedly because the years of neglecting the problems in Bulgaria's defence system have led to a certain capability deficit. If we do not take urgent and firm action, we risk destroying our 110-year history of military aviation. 
In Estonia, another of Russia's neighbours, there is a debate taking place regarding the most appropriate forms of air defence to develop. Kuku Radio asked Tamo Raniso, CEO of the Estonian Defence Industry Association, for his take on where the focus should lie. Such large-scale conventional warfare in Europe has led countries to review their defence development plans and defence capability plans. It is time to return to reality. Today everyone is paying close attention to the specifics of the conflict in Ukraine. Undoubtedly, mobile anti-aircraft devices and mobile anti-aircraft missiles are the most effective options when you are up against the massive Russian army. In terms of quality, this army does not shine for many reasons, but it still has plenty of firepower and will for a long time to come. The recent turn of events has also led to 20,000 additional US troops being posted to Europe since the start of the year. This represents an increase of some 25% and a return to levels not seen for the last 15 years. These troops' commander-in-chief, President Biden, attended this week's European summit in Brussels to discuss the evolution of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as how best to support the besieged nation. Ukraine's President Zelensky also joined the summit to discuss the proposed Marshall Plan for Ukraine. On an official visit to Poland, Swiss President Ignacio Cassi joined Polish PM Mateusz Morawiecki in pledging support to help Ukraine rebuild after the war, as Polsky Radio reports. And Switzerland and Poland and the whole of the European Union are preparing for a great reconstruction plan after the war comes to an end, which will hopefully happen as soon as possible. Today we are focused on the here and now, but we remain optimistic that the conditions will allow us hopefully soon, to think about the reconstruction of Ukraine, the refugees return to Ukraine. The idea of some kind of reconstruction fund for Ukraine is widely backed by political figures across Europe and the world, including in Germany, as AMS highlights. In the Western Balkans too, Russia's capacity to cause harm is a cause for concern. Moscow has been meddling in the region for at least a decade, seeking to woo Serbia with funds and fuel, while inciting Bosnia and Herzegovina's Serbian entity, Republika Srpska, to reject the hoped-for unitary state. EU leaders touched on this situation on Thursday evening. The bloc helps to ensure security in Bosnia and Herzegovina through an EU4 peacekeeping operation, involving 15 member states and four partner countries. An additional 500 troops were sent to the Butmir base near Sarajevo at the end of February, almost doubling the size of the operation. Dragan Maric, a Slovenian commander stationed at Butmir, confirmed to RTV Slo that the region is still experiencing some level of ethnic tensions and political instability and that Russia's influence is strong here. I'm not talking so much about direct political influence, but a kind of soft influence. There are various cultural communities, a large Serbo-Russian cultural centre is being built in Banja Luka. There is influence in the school system and in the media. Russia is involved in arming and training the gendarmerie, and so on. This said, the security situation in Bosnia is calm, and the threat level is low, so U4 is operating normally without any problems. 
Following the activation of the Temporary Protection Directive earlier this month, on Wednesday the 23rd of March, the Commission presented a package aimed at ensuring reception conditions for Ukrainian refugees. Some 3.4 billion euros have been put on the table and new instruments deployed to support refugees' access to the labour market, housing, education and healthcare. Of the 3.5 million refugees to have left Ukraine, at least 1.5 million are children, with a further 2.5 million minors estimated to be displaced within Ukraine's borders. The Commission is paying special attention to unaccompanied minors, pushing to speed up their registration and the allocation of host families, and to protect them from the risks of abuse and trafficking, risks that are outlined here by Commissioner Ilva Johansson, whose comments are reported by AMS. I'm very, very worried about the risk of trafficking in human beings in general, for children especially. Unfortunately, we have some signs of cars waiting to pick people up, women and children, vulnerable people. We have some indications on online services that are the demand for Ukrainian women for sexual purposes has grown up. Join us next week for another look at current affairs from a Euronet Plus perspective.